So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Would you uh, say a prayer with me? We'll get started. Uh, Lord, thank you for this beautiful fall day. Thank you for the sun and for the warm weather and for the day of rest that we can gather and we can fellowship and we can sing and we can worship you. We can be encouraged and fed and strengthened from your word. I just pray that uh, your word would uh, be accompanied by your Holy Spirit now, Lord. May you do a great work in our hearts. May you uh, remove the dross and the covers from our eyes and our hearts that weigh us down and blind us and allow us to see Jesus for who he is, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So earlier this summer, my wife and I have a, a 10-month-old son named William. And for whatever reason, we thought it would be a good idea to schedule three 10-day trips back-to-back in June. Someone should have told us that was not a good idea, but most of them were for work, so I was literally just flying out, gone for nine or ten days, home for three days, and then turned around again. So uh, exhausting, out-of-sleep schedule, waking up five times during the night because he's not in his, he's in a pack-and-play the whole time in different rooms, uh, really rough. And he's actually fine on almost all of the flights except for one where he, he just, I mean, it was delayed on the ground before takeoff for two hours, right? So we were just... It was just way too long, and he was just screaming. He wouldn't take a bath. He wouldn't eat. He, like, didn't want anything. We couldn't. I was rocking them and, like, over the shoulder and trying to pass them off to people, and no one wanted them because he was screaming. Uh, it, was, it was a disaster. Super stressful. I don't know if y'all, I'm sure many of y'all have been in that situation, too. It's, it's not fun. So, so we felt, like, pretty hopeless, right? Like, this is just, just going to be bad the whole way. Like, Lord, please just end this. Um, definitely friendless. Like, you literally can't, you have no help at that point. No, like, you can't pass him anywhere. No one's going to take him. You are on your own, doing your own thing. So helpless, hopeless, friendless, it's kind of how we felt until the flight ended by God's grace and we left the airplane. But uh, in, in a different and much more severe way was the man in the passage today that we, that we just read. He was certainly friendless. Um, I'm sure lost all of hope for ever being healed and, and walking again and being able to move about. Um, no one cared for him. He, he, was, he was lost. He was despairing, I'm sure, uh, until someone steps into his life. And, of course, that someone was Jesus. And so in this passage, we really see how Jesus conquers brokenness and changes the lives of his people. So if, you, if you're a note-taker, we see that he conquers brokenness in three ways. One, with radical compassion. Two, with radical conflict. And three, with radical counsel. So again, if you follow along, if you have your Bibles or your bulletins, let's look again to verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, so in this, this little passage, the first, few, the first three verses give us the context. They set the stage. They lay the groundwork for what's going on, for what we should expect, right? So here, here there's a feast of the Jews. 
Obviously, the passage doesn't tell us what feast that was. It's not super important. There were three feasts uh, that the, the male Jews had to go to every single year. Uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Again, it's not super important, but this was a feast that likely everyone had to go to, right? Um, okay, so look, and, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And this is a bit of a side note, but a point I want to make nonetheless, right away. Jesus does all the law says he has to do. If the law says you have to go up to Jerusalem three times a year, you can be sure that Jesus went up to Jerusalem three times a year. In the same way, we can extrapolate that out even further, all that God demanded of a person made in his image to do, Jesus did fully. Okay, so it's called his active obedience, as theologians call it. He literally did everything that was necessary for us to be saved, for a person to be righteous in God's eyes. That's Jesus. Okay, you see that right here, right off the bat. He went up to Jerusalem. So right, in some sense, we can be like, thank you, Jesus. Like we can be encouraged by like, his law-keeping for us. Right? This, is, this is the gospel. Um, okay, so verse 2, if you're following along. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five root colonnades. Okay, so here, a little bit more detail in the story before he really gets into it. Right? Um, another point here, which is directly in the text. Whenever the Bible speaks of something historical, it's true. Okay, it's not purely like this science book or this history, but it, when it speaks to something scientifically, when it speaks to something historical, it's true. Now, uh, 18th, 19th century critical scholars who wanted to disprove the Bible, who were saying, oh, the Bible's false, if you can't trust it, right? They would look for passages that they could turn to, like, oh, look, see, this is wrong historically, this actually never happened. This was one of those passages. They, for the longest time, right, for 18th, 19th centuries, there was never a pool found with these five roofed colonnades, okay? So, like, this was one that, let's see, the Bible's false, right? Until, uh, not too long ago, in the north, uh, let's see, the northeast quarter of Jerusalem, uh, excavators uncovered these two pools lying north and south, surrounded by four covered colonnades with a fifth colonnade that went between them and a trapezoid pattern. So what once was a passage that disproved the Bible became a passage that actually spoke to the validity and trustworthiness of the Bible. So y'all, you can have great hope. And this is one of the coolest things about Christianity. It's a historical religion. You can look in history and in time and space. Jesus came in time and space and history. And you can, you can, you can see that validated in life in very normal ways. Okay? Uh, so now look at, look at the last verse, verse 3 of the context here. Uh, the passage says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So Bethesda literally means house of mercy. Uh, and we see these, these people who are in dire need, right? They're physically uh, estranged. And very likely they were financially uh, helpless too. So these, these are very poor, physically helpless people. Um, okay, so I feel like I have to mention this. Look at, look at verse 4 in your Bible. Oh, there's no verse 4, okay? I'll try to be, be uh, quick and brief with this, but the way the Bible, again, so Christianity be this historical religion, right? We, the Bible wasn't lowered out of heaven uh, on, on golden tablets, okay? It actually came in time and space. She's still laughing. Which uh, is really cool, right? So they have all these ancient Greek New Testament documents, right? So naturally, some of the oldest ones, the date closest back to when Jesus actually lived, would be the best, right? 
Um, so some of the oldest, the most trustworthy, the most full New Testament documents that we have don't contain verse 4, which is why the ESV translators who you know, put this Bible together for us left it out with this little footnote, right, that said, you know, some manuscripts insert, I'll, I'll read it, waiting for the moving of water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring up the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's, the, that's the, what the footnote says, right? So what probably happened is some, some scribe who was copying these manuscripts later on was looking for like a naturalistic or even a supernatural explanation for why people believe that. Maybe they actually did believe this, right? But, but this doesn't destroy our view of the Bible's inspiration, right? No, this actually is, helps us understand it more. But so we have good reason to believe that one's right. If you have more questions on what's called textual criticism, Ask uh, Bill here. He'll be happy to talk to you about that. Or uh, Reverend Dan Bree when he gets back. Uh, it's really fascinating uh, stuff, too. But Okay, so mentioning that, moving on. Uh, now let's look at the actual meat of the story, out of the context. Verses 5 through 7. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there already a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going down, another one steps down before me. Okay, so here's the actual story. Consider both the man and consider Jesus with me for a moment. Okay, so this man, he's in a miserable, again, depressing condition. He's like a rusty old car in a junkyard, okay? Like, you don't really have hope for that car ever coming back and getting on the road again. That's, that's this man. Uh, he suffered terribly for 38 years. That's 11 years more than I'm old. Uh, that's a... I can't even comprehend that, okay? 38 years of suffering. He really is truly friendless. He says he has no one to help him into the pool. That's not a huge request, okay? Like, he's got no one, absolutely no one. Uh, and he probably would be rejected by society and by the leaders of the day because the Jewish leaders would have looked at this man and been like, well, he must have done something terrible and God has smitten him for it, so we're not going to associate with this man. We're going to separate ourselves from this man. So he, he is, is truly on his home. Okay, so that's the man. Think about Jesus. He comes in. He sees this man because he's God. He knows the situation of this man, and he calls to him. Jesus, this stranger, does what no one else will do. His radical compassion on this broken man and changes his life. He asks him probably, do you want to be healed? Because if you think about it, if you've been suffering for nearly 40 years, you've most likely given up all hope of ever changing, right? What's the, what's the purpose of hanging on to some hope at that point? Like, you're just, nope, I'm done. So Jesus is trying to kind of draw him out a little bit. He's like, hey, do you still want to be healed, right? Like, do you still have any hope for that whatsoever? And it wants this man to admit, basically, come to the realization that he is fully, fully broken and needs some supernatural help to, to have that changed. Of course, his answer is misdirected, right? He talks about the pool being stirred up. Jesus knows that the pool won't actually heal someone. It's the power of God who actually heals someone. Okay, so then we see the peak of Jesus' compassion here, of his radical compassion, verses uh, 8 through 9 and a half. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, if you all are avid uh, Bible readers... If you've read the Gospel of Mark, which is not the Gospel of John, obviously, you'll notice that oftentimes you see the word immediately used. Give me some head nods if you, okay. Yeah, yeah, immediately, right? Mark is so action, 
you know, action-oriented, fast-paced. Immediately, Jesus did this. Immediately, Jesus did that. John doesn't, doesn't do that so often uh, in, in the Gospel of John, but he uses the word here, uh, and it's, it's, not, it's used at once. It's the same Greek word. It's translated differently. It could be saying immediately. What's the point of that? He's demonstrating here that this healing was instantaneous. There is no naturalistic explanation to this healing. He didn't have to go to rehab. He could literally get up and walk after 38 years. It is an amazing, supernatural, awesome healing that Jesus did uh, to this man. Okay? Um, when, when my wife, Lauren, who's not here, was finishing up uh, college, she, she went to school at the University of Kansas. So you have to take Interstate 80, kind of west through the middle of nowhere for this really long. And, and in winter, this often will have a ton of snowstorms and cars just get stranded on Interstate 80 like every, every single time it snows, right? So she, uh, for whatever reason, thought it would be a good idea to drive home from KU uh, through the night in a snowstorm with her friend. I'm still a little hard to understand why she thought that was a good idea. Um, but she can tell you uh, if you see her at some point. But so... She was going over a bridge. A semi-truck, I think, was next to her and kind of sprayed some snow at her, and she lost control, and she spun, and, you know, was ah, the car, and uh, went down into the ditch. And she was fine. Her roommate was fine. The car was even fine with a little bit of a dent in the side, but God's grace, right? So now you're in the middle of nowhere on Interstate 80, and you're stuck in the snow when there's, um, you know, hundreds of other cars stuck in the snow on Interstate 80 as well. I mean, she probably would have had to just, just sit in the car because you don't want to leave it and walk, right, at that point and just wait for help. And it could have been an incredibly long time, right, uh, until the, the streets got cleared and tow trucks could come and tow everyone out. So she was in a pretty hopeless situation, too, uh, until a trucker who was behind her, this happened right away, saw this happen, and two of them actually slowed down, blocked the interstate together, and a different pickup truck hooked up to her car and, and towed her out, right, and then drove her to the next exit as she followed them really closely at slow. Uh, to the to a hotel, and they got her a hotel and checked her in, and she was and she was fine, right? Like radical compassion from the from the other drivers on the road completely changed Lauren's kind of helpless at the, in the time being situation. Uh, again, so that's what we see Jesus doing to this man in the pool. Uh, so on on this first point, I have, I have three quick uh, things to mention for application for you. Number one, be reminded of the gospel. The gospel that, that we are, are saved not by our works. We are saved by the blood of Christ alone, by his works, by his going up to Jerusalem, by him doing all that was necessary for us. We didn't deserve it. Uh, we, we get God's amazing compassion and radical compassion for us through his son. Be reminded of the gospel in, in this passage. This man was so helpless, he did nothing to be saved. He was just there and Jesus came to him and called to him. That's what he does to us. Be reminded of, of the gospel of Jesus' radical compassion here. Two, yeah, let your hearts be struck by how amazing and loving and compassionate Jesus is. If we could, could truly see more clearly how unlovable we are, now I know that might be some news to y'all, okay? Because uh, y'all think we're all, we all think we're pretty good. But if, if we could truly see how, how the Lord would see us, who is perfect and sinless, see us for who we are, but then also just consider how amazing God's love is. We, we would love him all the more. So, so just see Jesus for who he is 
in this passage to this man and be reminded of who he is and how he loves you in the same way. And lastly, and by way of application, look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Jesus comes to this multitude of invalids and lame people. He heals one. Not all the other ones stayed broken. Okay? What, what does that tell us, right? Jesus could have healed them all, but he just healed one. No, there's, there's still brokenness in this world. One day, when Jesus returns, we're going to have the full physical healing. Everyone who's in Christ will be healed. And that is something to look forward to. So, all of your eggs are not in the basket for here and now. Jesus might not heal you like he did to this man. He, he does that. Like, the Lord still heals people, okay? Like, that happens. But it might not. It might be when Jesus returns that you have full physical healing. Look forward to that. It's something to look forward to. Okay, so brokenness, as we see, is not uh, conquered through radical compassion alone. When Christ comes, conflict often follows. If you have, again, bulletins, Bibles, look at verses 9.5 through 10 with me. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath that's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Okay, so that little first... Uh, that's one uh, sentence right there. It's a little comment, right? Now, this day was the Sabbath. In some ways, that should kind of be like a tornado siren for us in the text as we read it, right? Uh-oh, something's going to happen. You know, and, of course, it does, right? Uh, trouble is coming. So if you've been around church a while, uh, you, you know that the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day hated it when people did anything on the Sabbath. This would be like if you spilled coffee on the carpet in the sanctuary. Mm-mm, don't you do it, man. Y'all be coffee with your fellowship, careful with your fellowship, break coffee in here, okay? I mean, that's kind of, this is like a big church no-no, spilling coffee, doing things on the Sabbath. That's, that's what these guys didn't like so much. They said it is not lawful, okay? So what law are they, what are they talking about when they say that? Are they talking about Old Testament law that they're accusing Jesus of breaking, right? The lawbreaker, Jesus Christ. There's a couple passages, the Exodus 20, Jeremiah 17, they say things like, do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day and bring it in through the gates. Well, if you actually kind of study the context a little bit and learn more, the, the language through the gates implies normal work, normal vocation. And in fact, some people disagree on this, but the, the Old Testament is, would be against doing your normal job, your normal work on the Sabbath. Now, okay, we're saved by Jesus. We all do that, right? Like, we're just, we're just big sinners. This is why Jesus is so compassionate, why he's so good, okay? But, like... That's a different conversation. So, but it's not against <clears throat> what, just picking up a mat, okay? So they're referring to their rabbinical tradition. They had these 39 classes of work, one of them which prohibited taking up or carrying or moving anything from one place to another. So they're referring to their, 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 their interpretation, their tradition based on Scripture, and to some degree, right, because they really want to break any of it. But so that's what they're saying uh, that this man did, right? He broke the law. Okay, so now look at the man's response in verses 11 through 13, and then also the last, verse 16, too. Uh, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there, there was a crowd in the place. And then verse 16, uh, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's really interesting, just like Adam pointed to Eve, uh, when, when he sinned in the garden, and then just like how Eve pointed to the serpent, this man says, uh, Jesus did it. Okay? 
I wouldn't recommend trying that one with the Lord. Uh, just, just check that one off the box. Not, not the best uh, excuse to look for. But that's what he does, where he just points his finger at someone else. Now, one thing also it's worth mentioning here. This man didn't know who healed him, right? We see that. Like, Jesus withdrew. There's a crowd in the place. So he wasn't healed on account of his faith. Jesus just healed him. It wasn't because of his faith. And you do see that sometimes, right? Um, in, in the Gospels, even. In Mark 5, there's this woman who's been suffering and bleeding for 12 years. She has faith in him. She touches his garment as, as he's walking. And Jesus says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Okay, so that's not what happens here. It's not because of his faith. Why does Jesus withdraw? Possibly just to let the Jewish leaders figure it out on their own, not based on who it was that healed him, but just try to see. Like, we don't really know for sure. But three things were worth mentioning. The Jewish leaders could care less about this healing, okay? They could care less if this guy was healed at all, who suffered for 38 years. They only cared about their loss. Um, also, Jesus didn't have to tell the per- the, that man who he healed to pick up his mat. He could have just healed him. He didn't have to say, pick up your mat and walk, right, to get him in trouble with the, with the authorities. He could have just healed him. And then third... This man's illness wasn't life-threatening. He could have healed him, healed him any other day. It did not have to be on Sunday. Okay, so what are, what are all these things pointing to? Jesus intentionally engaged in conflict with the Jewish authorities. He knew what he was doing. He knew that by saying, take up your bed, and by healing him on the Sabbath, he was trying, he was looking for a fight with the Jewish leaders. Um, so, and we see over and over again, by the New Testament that we have, that the the leaders of the Bible teachers, the pastors, the priests of Jesus' day uh, perverted the law of God. They perverted what actually is good news about Christianity and took it for something that we are saved by God's grace through faith, in, faith ultimately in Christ and made it about perfect law-keeping obedience, checking every single box. The problem with this is we know that we can't do that, right? This is why I'm saying it's so good that Jesus keeps all the laws for us because we know we can't. But because they lost the gospel, they lost the, the, the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, Jesus goes after them. He engages them in conflict. So, uh, sometimes we have to pursue radical conflict before resolution can come. Again, that's what we see Jesus doing. There was a student last semester uh, who lived in a house with four other girls. She was a girl. And one of her roommates, one of the girls, uh, without asking any of the other roommates, just had a guy come move in and live in the house. Figured it was okay. No big deal. Um, of course, all the other roommates are upset. Uh, was, you know, just, there's, there's not talking. There's this kind of weird defense mechanisms going on. But I, I so the student who's in RUF met with me, and I encouraged her. I was like, you have to go have this uncomfortable confrontation with your roommate. You have, you have no choice here. You have to do this. She's doing something that's unacceptable. Um, she didn't even ask you first off, right? But you have to go after conflict. That's what, that's what Jesus did here. He had to go after it. He goes after these Pharisees not because he just likes to fight, but again, because of the they lost the life-changing news that we are saved by God's grace and not by our works. So again, we rest in that good news too. It's life-changing to rest in that. Your performance does not earn your way to heaven. Jesus does. Now, the, the final way that we see Jesus conquering brokenness in this passage is through the radical counsel that he gives. Look at uh, verses 14 and 15. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, it could have been later that day. It could have been later that week. We don't know exactly when the later was, but at some point later, Jesus goes and pursues this man again who he healed, one out of thousands. There would have been thousands of people who come to Jerusalem for one of these feasts. Okay, So Jesus, again, you know here, is pursuing this man. He is seeking him out. Okay, He finds him. Because remember, this man didn't know who healed him. He didn't, know, he didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. He was just healed. Okay, So Jesus had healed him physically, and now he's going to pursue him to heal him spiritually. He's going to pursue his heart now. Okay, He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This is a bit of something to chew on a little bit here. Uh, these two clauses in the Greek are tied together. There's no way you can separate them. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What is that, what is that, what's the implication there? This man sinned, and he was suffered for 38 years because of it. Let's let that soak in just a minute here. Um, does this mean that every time we sin, we will, something will happen to us and we'll suffer because of it? No. It does not mean this. Now, in some sense, right, we know that all suffering came into the world through sin, right? So it's, in some sense, it's all tied to Adam and Eve's first sin, all creation just by, you know, normal generation coming through them, like we're all born into sin, right? But this doesn't mean that every specific instance of suffering is tied to a sin. However, we do see in the Bible that that would be the case, where a specific, something that you did wrong to disobey God's law leads to sin. Here's an example of it. You all know an Acts, um, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, right? They sell their property just like everyone else is to give money to the church, and they lie about how much they sold it for. They kept some money for themselves. What happens? God just kind of says, there, there, don't lie. That's not what happened. He killed them. He killed Ananias and Sapphira because of their sin, right? Uh, that's some serious church discipline, y'all. Uh, take that Okay, but there also are examples in the, in the Bible where it's not directly tied to sin. And actually, later on in John chapter 9, uh, a man was born blind. And Jesus and his disciples come up to this man and they asked Jesus, was it because of this man's sin or because of his parents' sin that he's blind? And Jesus says, neither. Not because of their sin. So the power of God could be shown forth, and he heals them. Um, so we, it's not always the case. Uh, but it, it does mean some things, and we'll get to that. Um, so again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that um, it, it's every single connection, right? Okay. So Jesus says that nothing worse may happen to you. What would be worse in this man's situation? What would be worse in 38 years of suffering, of loneliness, of friendliness, of helplessness, of hopelessness? Hell. One of those really tough doctrines of Christianity. Hell would be worse. Someone once said, a sickbed is a sorrowful place, but hell is much worse. Uh, Jesus' radical counsel to this man was sin no more. This is his counsel. Sin no more. It doesn't, the Bible does not teach that a Christian never sins. Y'all, if that was what the Bible taught, we would have no hope. Christianity is not good news. Don't come back to church. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach, though, that a Christian should hate sin. We should despise how sinful we are and the, the sin that we do. And we should fight against it. We should flee from it. Um, and we, we should repent, of course, and, and look to Jesus who did pay for all of our sins on the cross when we do sin and trust in him. 
Uh, four years ago, I, find, I found out that I have uh, temporomandibular joint dysfunction, TMJ. You all ever heard of that? TMJD. Um, it's where, like, your jaw kind of pops a lot or kind of locks open or closed, that kind of thing. Um, I thought I had it and in seminary for the first three years. I did not get that fixed because that was expensive and we didn't have insurance when I was in seminary. Uh, but last year, I finally, you know, under good insurance with RUF and people who, who support that. Thank you all. Um, I went to see a, a, a specialist and they fit me with this, apply, this device, basically, that holds my jaw apart such enough. So basically, it can start to heal, right? It, it can let the ligaments heal. It'll, it'll fix it. It'll stop popping. And that, and that has happened. Um, still got some headaches here and there, but uh, it, it's been amazing since I've had it. A huge blessing. But when I first got it, I got this document with it from the, the specialist. It said, okay, so here's your device. You have to wear this device 24 hours of every single day for the rest of your life. And I was like, come again? Um, what? You know, I have to talk to people. Uh, I kind of do that thing. And so she's like, oh, okay, it's okay, it's okay. It, just wear as much as you can because it'll help it heal. It'll continue to make it stronger the more you wear it. But the more you wear it, the better it will go for you. That's what Jesus says to this man. The less you sin, the better it will go for you. And that's just as true for us today. Like, the way God designed life to work and the way he's told us that it works in his word is actually the best thing that we could ever do in life. God's word is not oppressive. The Bible, his law, is not doesn't hold us back from joy. No, it actually is the best thing that could ever, we could ever have, uh, that we could ever do. So, so the doctor's counsel to me was wear this device as much as you can. Jesus' counsel to this man, to us, is flee from sin. Sin no more. Two final points of application, uh, and then we're done. Learn, number one, learn to see sin for what it is. Learn to see sin for how wicked it is, for how it separates you from other people, it, it suffers relationships, it separates you from God, how it, how it hurts you, it wounds you, it might even have an actual effect on your life in, in some way. Learn to see sin for what it is. It's wickedness. Um, it's how, how terrible it is. Uh, and secondly, learn to be repentant. Because again, I, I definitely know that y'all are perfect. I definitely know. I'll be the first one to say I'm not perfect. That's why we love Jesus so much. But learn to be repentant. Be quick to repent with your spouses when you do something wrong, uh, with your kids when you're a little bit angry, when they don't listen to you. Uh, be quick to repent. Be quick to ask for forgiveness and to come to Christ in prayer and beholding his goodness and glory uh, yet again. And by the grace of God, our lives will change, just like Jesus changed this man's life. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for how much you love us, uh, how much you care about us, how much you pursue us, for how much that you forgive us, how often and how sweet that is. May we uh, just, just rest in the goodness of your word, of the gospel, of what you've done for us. May we be emboldened and strengthened against our fight against sin. Uh, to hate it, to turn from it, to encourage each one another towards godliness, uh, and, and by doing so, taste and see that you are good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please rise and response.